Your son was an accident. I wanted to kill you. But you took it so personally. Why didn't you just kill yourself or let it go? No father could. No brother could either. Neither could his sister. Hey, baby. Sasha, what the fuck are you doing here? Gee, Archer, I guess I'm crashing. You okay, baby? Yeah, thanks. Sasha, baby. I'm Caster. That's Archer. And I'm bored. Put the fucking gun down. Why don't you put your guns down? Ah, <laughs> uh, what a predicament. <laughs> Greetings, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of the Point 10 Podcast. I'm Derek Gottlieb. In this outing, it's our very first Redux episode. We are talking about 1997's Face Off again, starring Nick Cage and John Travolta and Joan Allen, etc., etc. This movie was also, you may recall, the subject of Season 1, Episode 4, but this film is just a bottomless source of takes, and Winston Thompson is here joining me on the impossible quest to reach the bottom of this infinite film. Let's get to it. So good to see you, Winston, in the month of May. We're without our the third leg of our stool. <laughs> this time, That's right. But we're going to That's we're right. gonna have to persevere. Very ironically, I mean, it's not that ironic. In a movie or with respect to a movie that that is so much about the demands and vengeances associated with fatherhood, it seems that fatherhood is taking Andy away from us for this for this one month. Well, I I I, I miss Andy, and I also I understand uh, as a as a father as you are as well. Uh, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. And it, as you say, it's, it makes sense for the themes of this film, certainly. Absolutely. So as as we were talking about just a second ago off air, this oddly is a movie that we have covered on this show, not we, you and I, that has been covered on the show. And so I'm excited to revisit it. You and Andy were very excited about doing it, uh, given the sort of the things that we have been talking about, identity, parenthood, all this kind of stuff. So yeah. Um, what what was it like rewatching the movie? This is weird for me because now, like, I've seen it twice now in the last year, and I don't think I've watched it all the way through. You know, since sure. I was in high school. So, like, what was your experience of rewatching it like? Yeah, so rewatching it. So certainly, the themes of fatherhood uh, rose to the surface in a way that they uh, <laughs> that they likely would not have done when I saw it the first time, as you know, uh, whatever middle schooler, high schooler, something like this. Um, but you know, it also took me back to an era of Nicolas Cage movies, right? I mean, so I, I th there's like a run of these movies that occurs. Yes, in this exactly. period, right? I think this of like Nicholas Cage came out in the same year, maybe. Yep, the same year, and the year before this was The Rock. So there's like this, yeah, yeah. this like this stream of like Nicholas Cage in prison movies <laughs> that's that's happening like in the in the late '90s that um, that I was totally, you know, I was totally connected to oh, yes. um, growing up. Yeah, but um, but yeah, but so watching it this time around, definitely thinking about these themes of fatherhood, uh, definitely. Um, you know, uh, 
sort of noticing some of the, the the visual language of the film. I mean, there's just like all of these interesting kind of affectations that the characters have and these kind of the these interesting moments uh, of the camera lingering on mm-hmm. certain features of the relationships between the characters uh, that stood out to me. Um, and, you know, I think uh, given some of what we discussed in our Demolition Man episode, just thinking about uh, a comment that you made during that episode that I think was stimulated by your previous watching of this film, but just the depiction of, of, of the criminals here stood out to me as well. I mean, there's just this, again, this kind of, you know, cartoon character that is Caster Troy uh, and these these other, you know, uh, criminals who have their own kind of code. They care about one another in certain ways, but, uh, you know, civilians are completely uh, expendable to them. Uh, they've got these motivations that are in some some ways clear, right? They they care about money, right? They're doing it for money, but they also seem to be just doing it for for the sheer yeah the, the joy of the criminal activity and it's it's yeah completely Literally for fun like bizarre the, the yeah. number of times that caster like obviously this is a movie about the exchange of faces and really how similar you know cop and yeah. criminal are but the major distinction that uh caster troy keeps throwing in sean archer's face is that sean archer is not enjoying himself he's not That's having right. any fun it's like the entire like yeah the money is nice the drugs are nice like, sure all that kind of stuff but really it's just like uh, you know i can't stay within society's lines it's too fun to break the rules blah blah blah. that's it's, right it's that's right that's right thing yeah. i mean there is a way right in which you could imagine that the film i mean so I'm also I'm so I'm just curious about a lot of this film and I want to ask you what your uh sense of things was revisiting it again but there is a way in which this film could uh kind of play with a lot of those themes for the character of of Sean Archer right so so Archer you know when he becomes Troy and I guess I should say or we should say for those who haven't seen the film or don't know what it's about uh <laughs> there is this character <laughs> Caster Troy and his brother Pollux Troy uh who are these sort of criminal masterminds uh, these sort of domestic terrorists uh, and uh, Castor years ago uh, has uh, killed the son of this um, counter terrorist uh, cop Sean Archer played by John Travolta um, and through a, a, a just sort of you know series of events um, there's this bomb in Los Angeles that's gonna go off uh, Pollux Troy knows where the bomb is and he's he's paranoid so he'll only talk to his brother about it the brother's in a coma and so they decide to take his face off <laughs> as they say in the film and put it on Sean Archer so he can go deep undercover uh, and get this information. He's anyway, the only so, one he can do it. He's he's, he's the, the only, only one who can do it, right? Caster Troy so well. His body type is so similar. Blah blah. That's blah. right. That's right. I, the minute you started going yeah. down this road, I was like, oh, I can't wait. How are we going to describe <laughs> Face Off in a way that makes sense that is also more thorough than just be like, well, it's right in the title. If you want to know what That's the movie right. is about, this is this is yeah. it. <laughs> the face comes off. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Anyway. So. That being said, I, I guess I can I can just sort of leave it there. But so, what was it like? What was it like for you uh, coming back to this film uh, for the second you know, time yeah. in like less than a year, which is nuts. That's right. Uh, yeah. So I, well, 
there were two big, like the first time I rewatched this, it was, it was definitely the experience of being like, this is not as awesome as I remember it. Like the, the boat chase, whatever fight scene at the end was still fucking awesome. That is a great set piece. I remember getting to the end of the church scene, the church shootout, like Mexican standoff thing and being like, what happens? Like, how is there, how are there still 30 minutes left in this movie? And then I was like, Oh, this is just John Woo is just going to go nuts with this. That's I right. read something as part of the research for the last episode that I'm just going to say here again, that apparently sure. that boat scene was supposed to go in hard target, which was John Woo's first hmm. U.S. film, but like for whatever, for space reasons, it got cut. And he was like, fuck it. It's going in. Putting it in this. Off. Yeah, exactly. So, you that, know, that makes that makes sense because, yeah. OK, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Go, yeah, go ahead. I mean, it, it, just, it feels a little bit tacked on. I mean, it is mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, scene, but um, but the transition from funeral in the church to high speed boat chase is. Um, is no, no notable. Yeah. The, when I saw it as a teenager, the, it was, just, it's such a paradigmatic action film where you've got, uh, you've got these like two very masculine care, these two very different depictions of masculinity that are also sort of yeah. similar, whose motivations are clear, if nonsensical, and who are just mm. sort of like set in motion with respect to each other. And like, th- like one must destroy the other. That's how it's going to go. And so like, uh, and I remember that being awesome when I rewatched it initially for episode four for season one, episode four of this podcast that appeared to me in a slightly different light. I was like, well, this is really sort of a meditation on masculinity in general. And so like, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And this time when I rewatched it, that only sort of deepened. I had, I'm sure I've brought her name up on this podcast before, but I had uh, Libby Anchor's uh, book Orgies of Feeling in my head. Mm. Like she's, that's uh, a book that she has written that is specifically about, um, post 9-11 popular culture, like War on Terror era popular culture. But uh, she develops this um, analysis of filmic melodrama. And so what I was noticing this time is how much crying there is in this movie, specifically how much mm. time Sean Archer spends in tears over the death of sure. his son, over the fact that like Castor Troy is having sex with his wife. Over like mm-hmm. all these things are like um there's like there th- there are two emotions that men are allowed to have. Like yeah. one is like this violent rage, another right. is this sort of like this loving protectiveness, the mm-hmm. violation of which is the cause for the deepest most expressive sorrow that like one can imagine. So those are the things that really stood out to me on, on this rewatch. I just like, it was, it was odd. Like, like thinking about like the action movie genre. And this is totally like, this is a hundred percent Libby anchors analysis. She's like the whole idea of like the, like absolute good versus evil as a way of like shoring up what masculinity is supposed to be about. Like this is where, crying is not only appropriate but like she's like this is basically a male weepy is what this is sure sure well i mean so so what i was going to say earlier and this is this is uh, certainly connected i mean you could imagine a version of this uh story in which there is a contempt of course uh that the characters feel for one another as they are enemies um but also some attraction right they're they're repulsed by each other but they're also sort of seduced by the life that the other is living right so yeah, right. let's imagine a version of Sean Archer, you know, who hates Castor Troy, 
but on some level, you know, feels trapped by his suburban experience and, you know, the lack of respect from his, his daughter and sort of, you know, his, the, the remaining child he has left, um, and looks at, 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 uh, you know, at Castor, um, you know, being admired by his hench, you know, people. And, uh, Sean Archer is kind of held in this contempt by his, uh, subordinates at, at work. And, um, you, you could imagine a version of this where he's kind of, uh, uh, repulsed again by, 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 by Castor, but also seduced by his, his experience. And you could imagine a version of this story where, uh, where Castor is also, you know, contemptuous of uh uh of Sean Archer but also longs for the stability of his of his marriage of his family life of his um you know uh you know uh, uh, life as a law abiding citizen um and then that kind of become i mean effectively what i'm saying here is that this film is freaky friday for yeah. <laughs> uh, middle-aged men right um, yes, all, all exactly you needed right. was for them to kind of look into the into the camera and say i wish you know yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I wish i was living his life and then sort of they wake up in in the other body but um yeah but i i don't do you know anything about the uh the kind of the 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 genesis of this of this film its story because it is a freaky friday story um but it's sort of it, it's almost as though someone said you know freaky friday which is you know this kind of film franchise about uh daughters and mothers um you know what if what if we did this not for fathers and sons but for cops and robbers right uh, yeah anyway. i mean so i don't know anything about the genesis <laughs> of this movie i like as usual i've done zero research on uh on how this uh actually came together what strikes sure. me in your description of <laughs> freaky friday for cops and robbers is that it seems at some moments like they are trying to sort of do this or there's like it's not like there's no setup initially like, you know, I hate this person, but I also sort of envy their life. It's it's simply that like we're invited to believe that they know each other so well that each one can inhabit the other one's life sort of plausibly. You you have that moment where uh, where Caster Troy as, you know, in the face and body of Sean Archer uh, rescues Sean Archer's daughter from like being sexually assaulted and then is like is like here's a butterfly knife and let me tell you how to use it in a way that comes back like later in the movie which is like so like it's not that he was like i wish i could be the parent to sort of a teenager but like being in that situation he reacts you know not the way that sean archer would have in in all manners but not utterly dissimilarly either that's right uh that's right yeah there is there is this kind of there is this i'll just pick up on that thread to say that there is this kind of um and and you're right to acknowledge it um because i hadn't i hadn't seen it before but but there is this in the film where you know you get uh caster troy recognizing some validity to the life that Sean Archer has created. I mean, at first he seems, you know, again, upset that he's kind of stuck in this suburban hell. Uh, but then he begins to kind of, you know, uh, recognize that there's something in the marriage to, uh, to the wife, Eve. There's something, uh, in the relationship with the daughter, Jamie, right? Uh, or Janie, Janie, Jamie. I, I can't remember they, because they, yeah, he that's fucks right. it up in they, the movie at one point. Up, yeah. I can't remember which one it is. Yeah. But, but, but Sean Archer does the same as well. Um, as he's, you know, pursuing these, he kind of has these relationships with some of the other characters, right? With, uh, Caster's sort of longtime, uh, girlfriend who we then in the big reveal, 
discover is the is the mother to his um uh previously unknown child uh his relationships with the the sort of the henchman characters uh this kind of strong love uh uh this kind of camaraderie between them i mean you you start to see uh archer uh taking seriously these relationships yeah. um you know uh the the prison break scene right he's uh he seems to care about this uh this person that he had previously sent to the prison right yes, this person right. becomes a sort of uh at least momentary uh comrade in the prison break that he uh tries to save so yeah it's interesting so i i wanted to ask you about uh one of those moments in particular so like hmm. when Sean Archer, still at, in John Travolta's body, we always have to okay. specify, is, yeah. is, is initially <laughs> uh, interrogating Gina Gershon. Gershon. Yeah. Um, he, wheel, he just like ruthlessly wields her child against her as a way of trying to get her to talk. He's, he's essentially like, one call from me and your child it will be in foster care and you will never see this child again. And at the end of the movie, when he has inhabited Caster Troy's body and Gina Gershon does not realize that it's uh, Sean Archer and, and Archer is able to see that she is... I, like, my question is basically like, what changed? Like, parenthood is so central to who Sean Archer is and is very much the lens through which he sees the world, partly because of the trauma of losing his son, uh, of having his son killed in front of him by a bullet that doesn't actually kill Sean Archer, but passes through his body. Uh, it's striking that he can, that like, I, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, what is it that he recognized about Gina Gershon that, that, Ultimately, by the end of the movie, he's like, whatever happens, Sean Archer is off your back for good, I promise. Uh, he's saying that in the body of Castor Troy when she doesn't realize that it is him. But he has been like, oh, you are actually a mother. But, like, that's not new information to him. So, mm, like, I'm trying to figure yeah. out that's the part that I was trying to, like, piece together. Like, Yeah. No, I think, I, 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 I think that you're right to, to pose the question because the film – the film kind of gets us there emotionally, but it doesn't really give us a reason to have those emotions. And I guess for me, it's as though Archer, you know, as this kind of, you know, uh, relentless, uh, uh, cop almost doesn't see the criminals that he's pursuing as persons. And it's not until he is deep undercover, right? Like literally, in another identity, right? Um, that he begins to understand their humanity in a way that I think was obscured to him before, right? I think, um, you know, it's because he's, he, he occupies the space of the prison, um, and sees how the prisoners are treated. Uh, he has that line where he says to one of the, 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 the guards in the prison, you know, when I get out of here, I'm going to have you, uh, fired, right? <laughs> which, which, you know, you could read as him trying to inhabit the persona of Castor yes, Troy, yes. or you could read it as him kind of as the, the, the law officer, um, law enforcement officer sort of recognizing that 
these guards are abusing their power. And so uh, the criminal uh, 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 element here in the prison um, might be justified in sort of uh, revolting or pushing back. And so um, I think by the time he meets up with uh, uh, Gina Gershon's character again, um, he's kind of come around to sort of recognizing. And, and, and that's what I think is interesting about, you know, your earlier uh, comment that I invoked about the way that the film kind of depicts, um, you know, people who break the law as though they're just sort of doing it, uh, you know, for, for laughs, right? Um, the film does, I think, want to say, look, there's something going on here. It doesn't really get into this sort of systemic and structural analysis. Uh, it doesn't do that, but it does say, you know, these characters are more complex, um, than, either of the two uh, lead characters thought at the beginning of the film. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm yeah. taking it back to a thing that you said about Nicolas Cage finding himself in John Travolta's life. Like there's, there's the, the difference between, I mean, the characters hate each other and we're sort of invited to think of that as, as sort of like equal and opposite uh, sort of hatreds, but it's it really isn't. Like Archer's animus towards Nicolas Cage because Nicolas Cage has killed his son is it, like greatly exceeds that. So like Nicolas Cage gets to do some incredible acting as Sean Archer as he as he hates himself, hates the body that he's in, hates the life that he's in, especially when he ends up escaping from prison and having to like try to like sneak around and like get back to uh, convince his wife that he's who he says he is. All that stuff in a way that Sean Archer just or Sean Archer in a way that John Travolta <laughs> as Caster Troy uh, is just sort of annoyed at various points to be Sean Archer. He's just like, oh, what a boring life you've you've got. Like that's as that's as much as he hates the life that he is leading. But then the, like the other aspect of of that of his relationship to. Uh, Sean Archer's life is essentially to be like, you know, the <laughs> Pamela Landy's big critique of Sean Archer was essentially sure. was essentially like, you're obsessed with work, you're obsessed with this revenge, you're you're not paying attention to the life that you ought to be living. And what Caster Troy does essentially is is step into that life and and live it in a way that yeah. Sean Archer hadn't been doing. And so like yeah. that's like I'm not sure I'm not sure if we get enough from Caster Troy in John Travolta's body to know whether he like comes to like respect this life or enjoy it or whatever, or is simply just like a, I hate the bound, like the walls that you have built around your life, but also within these walls, there is like, you know, you could be doing better with what you have. Yeah, no, it's interesting, right? Because I think um, if if we got that in full, right? If we got a version of Caster uh, who had really come to understand, and I mean, so we get a little bit of the understanding, we get a little bit of him uh, valuing uh, the experiences uh, that uh Archer had been overlooking but I think maybe the reason that the film shies away from that is that if we got too much of that um it then sort of muddies the waters about who is the hero and who's the villain um and the film does want to make it clear that it's not it's not fully it, it, right I mean they're not sort of it's, it's not equivocating in the way that it could it's not sort of ending up with you know Archer having been dirtied a bit, uh, Troy having cleaned up a bit. Um, it's very clear 
at the end of the film that Archer has had these experiences. Um, he's able to kind of uh, process some of his grief. I mean, by the end of the film, he gets a new son, which Holy is, shit. I think, <laughs> a bizarre turn of events, uh, to say the least. But, um, you know, and Troy's Troy's dead uh, at the end of the film. And it's in part, I think, because of his hesitancy, the film, I think, wants to say, because of his hesitancy uh, to kind of... Um, to be transformed, to be changed by the experience. Underneath it all, he's still himself. Sure, Archer's still himself underneath it all, but he's open to uh, seeing the humanity of those that he had previously uh, despised or thought only as um, as criminals. He sees their 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 humanity uh, in a new way, and therefore also his own. To uh, that's to right. A great extent. Yeah, that's right. I since it has come up now. He gets a new son at the end of the movie. It is. That was like I had (laughs) prior to doing the earlier rewatch, I had utterly forgotten that aspect of it. And it is so jarring when it happens. I'm like, what is happening? How like what kind of resolution is this? Yeah. So um, so. I cannot imagine. Yeah, I just can't. I can't imagine it. Um, so yeah, so um, I just. I, yeah, I guess I, what I want to say is that I can't imagine what it must be like to lose a child, of course, yes. and I can't imagine what it is like then to think that you would you're taking in the child of the uh, person who killed your. Uh, you know, the child that you, that you lost. I mean, it's just, and the way that it happens in the film, right? I mean, he just sort of, you know, he, uh, uh, Archer gets his face back. Uh, he's coming home again, just in this very odd way. Like his family is not at oh the hospital. They're like, yes. they're at home, just kind of hanging out, waiting for him. Uh, you expect, I guess maybe he drives home or a car pulls up or whatever. He comes in, they embrace and he says, well, I've got a question for, 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 for both of you, his wife and daughter. I've got a question for both of you. Uh, and then he signals, you know, to the child, uh, to come in and he, he sort of asks them in front of the child if this kid can come live with them. I mean, it just seems. It's like so bizarre. The worst, the worst cliche of like bringing a puppy home. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Only it's a human child. <laughs> that's that's like, right. And, and the human child yeah. of your mortal enemy. That's right. Who was and, wearing your face <laughs> a week ago? Yeah. 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 It's just, it's completely, it's completely bizarre. And, um, you know, and in this throwaway line, uh, Janie or Jamie, whatever her name is, um, takes the kid and says, oh, let me show you your new room. Presumably to the room that her, you know, deceased brother used to occupy that they still sort of keep as a kind of, you know, in, in remembrance of, uh, and they're going to have this other kid sort of occupy the space. I think the film is also I think wise in never having that child talk. Yes. Um, like that child is never actually a person in this film. Uh, he's Adam. just kind of this. Yeah. He's just, <laughs> he's just Adam, right? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's his only line. I'm Adam. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I will say, like, rewatching <laughs> it even the second time, I was struck by, like, I realized that he's there to play sort of an emotional role. He's literally like a pinata being carried around through this massive sure. sort of like gunfight scene. Sure. Caster, now, rem- rem- like, this is just a technical question. Caster does not know. That's at right. the time that he is sending FBI agents to murder everybody in the building, including this child, that this child is his. It's That's like, right. yeah, it's not just Sean Archer who's learning uh, that he's okay. So that's right. Key point, but like, whatever it like the child, it, that, that's, it was such a striking scene. Be, like you see kids and teenagers being used as sort of pawns and action scenes, but never in exactly that way where like the child is at the center of things and is just sort of like freezing or like freezing up and like, People are just like carrying him around and doing like tuck rolls and whatever, trying to like save this child's life. I was, I was like a fascinating sort of action sequence. The end of the movie. So like such a big deal was made throughout the movie of being like, you know, it's Michael's birthday. Are we going to go see his grave or like the anniversary of his death or whatever? You never miss this, blah, 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 blah. I was like at the end of the movie, I'm like, so is that done now? Do we not do that anymore? Like, is this, is, are we literally replacing this child? And is this a happy yeah. ending? Is that what I'm supposed to take away from it? Like all the lighting suggests that it is. But yeah, the lighting, yeah. the music is swelling up yeah. and it's all in soft focus. Um, but it's, it's, it is, uh, I'll just say again, it's just such a bizarre ending. Uh, such an emotionally, um, just kind of, uh yeah just kind of tone deaf in a, in a in a way kind of read of what parents might be going through in grieving the loss of a child but on some on some level i suppose you know sticking with uh your earlier statement about um the way in which this film is kind of uh you know two versions of masculinity wrestling with one another um to some extent on that reading um there's a kind of a possessiveness about, uh, you know, these versions of masculinity. And so, you know, I guess, yeah, uh, a child for a child, uh, on some level, uh, might seem like a victory, but, right. but you, it is like, yeah, you get these, you get these two characters who cannot both survive the movie. Like you have these two pairs of like father and like young son. And then like at the end of the movie, there's just one father and one son. And so like, yeah. Ah, works That's, out. Yeah, <laughs> the movie of the world was not big enough for all four of them. My That's God. right. It's it's such an incredible. There's a lot of stuff, and when we, when one starts pushing on these issues in particular, it becomes like it's the thinnest part of the movie for sure. The 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 depiction of sort of like Sean Archer in particular lost a child. Uh, is devastated by that and driven to revenge to the utter exclusion of everything else in his life, including his remaining family members, his wife That's right. and his daughter. And we are invited to see his neglect in a very, what strikes me now is like a very sort of 90s understanding of like, you know, if Sean Archer were more present, then maybe his daughter wouldn't have like weird eyeliner or whatever. And That's like, right. Like this is the, like the, the big symbol that stuff is going off the rails is that she like does her hair weirdly or something. It, yeah. It's, it's yeah. It strikes me as so <laughs> like so minor, right? 
like now, but like, yeah. like that first shot when she turns around and like, it's just on her eyes and the eyeliner and like, you're, you're supposed to be like, Oh my God, a troubled teen. That's <laughs> right. She's got a piercing on oh, her yeah, face. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's completely, you know, life, life is off the rails here. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, so, you know, yeah. So, so, so yes, I think that there is this kind of, um, the shorthand in the film for, all sorts of issues here, grief, um, uh, you know, uh, emotional connection, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, for me, just on this, on this rewatch of the film, I, I just, I, I'd forgotten how, um, how they had gotten to the place of the, uh, face replacement, um, <laughs> like the plan, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like the, the, the degree of contrivance here, right? You get this yes. character of, you know, CCH Pounder coming in, um, kind of from nowhere. And she's sort of says, Archer, I've got a job for you. It's off the books. Nobody knows about it. You're the only man for the job. Uh, I've also got a team of scientists. No one knows about them either. Uh, they've got some procedures. No one else in the world could do these things. Uh, it's just, it's completely, um, it, it's, it's interesting, right? There's like this kind of, I guess what I would call like a kind of soft sci-fi to this film that yes, I hadn't really thought go. about yeah. in years. Mm-hmm. But but it's clear that this is not this is not the 1997 that you and I lived through, right? Like this is a 1997 <laughs> where there's yeah, like this, this weird kind of branch of technology, uh, you know, medicine and, and so forth. Uh, you know, they, they can switch the faces. They can put a microchip in your, in your throat oh God, to kind of so <laughs> to yeah, do exactly. the voice. Yeah. Um, the, in the jail, uh, you know, in the prison, there's this magnetic boot system. And I, I was, as I was watching this, I was thinking, what's the purpose of this? Why? I mean, they can put microchips in people. And they have the magnetic boots to, to keep track of where you are in the prison. Like what, what's going on here? But it's just, but again, like the film doesn't live in my mind as a sci-fi film. Um, but it is such a sci-fi kind of a soft sci-fi film here operating in the background that's, in a like, really interesting way. I mean, I think that's such a, that's such an important point. I had never until you mentioned it just now thought about the inconsistency and like they're introducing two different technologies in the boots and the microchip where they don't really need two of them, except that they're like, it it is like they came from two different movie ideas. And they were just like, like the prison is its own thing in which you've got essentially a black site before there were such things as black sites in which people don't exist. People are essentially disappeared into this prison. And also they have like, prison technologies some of which are from like the 1950s with this lobotomizing sort of uh electroshock therapy and some of which are you know so advanced that like boot metal system like yeah makes yeah. It, and, and, and then just, they've got yeah. these screens and they're showing them nature uh documentaries 24 yeah, hours exactly. a day it's just it's like this weird kind of dystopian uh kind of picture that's just kind of there in the background we don't really dive into it and also we don't see any other uh divergent technology like we don't see any other you know uh we don't see holograms or you know something something else in the background it's just these kind of weird touches for the purposes of the plot um, in this really kind of stylistic way. But like, um, it's interesting. It is really important. It feels like, like I'm just thinking about this now, the prison really like 
the prison exists in a totally separate universe from the rest of the yeah. movie. That's right. Yeah. Is what's crazy. Like people go into it and people get out of it. Like Pollux gets released at some point and that's, and that's great. But like, can you imagine being Sean Archer and like going into this prison and then escaping and being like, like, I know that I have to go kill Caster Troy now, but holy, do you guys know about this? Do you, yeah. like, are you aware of what we're doing to people? Of what's happening, yeah. <laughs> like it's And I mean also like the way like the way he gets out of the prison is also interesting because it's 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 the least um yeah, it's like the least amount of planning that I've seen in a prison break, perhaps in any <laughs> film, right? I mean yes. he sort of says, How can I he says to one character, How can I get out of here? The character says, You can't. Okay, how do I get the boots off? Well, the only time they take the boots off is if you're, you know, in this, you know, torture room. And mm. he says, okay. And then he goes and gets himself into the torture room literally in the same scene. It's not like he goes exactly. to have a think about it, to think about what he's going to do. He just goes into the, the torture room. They take the boots off. He breaks out. Um, you know, everything comes together. He ends up, uh, he ends up a free, a free man, but it, it does make, it makes it seem like it's a really inefficient prison, uh, that yeah. you could just sort of, I mean, he's not even a criminal, right? He's not, he's, he's not had the sort of training, uh, <laughs> that you would imagine, uh, the other, uh, incarcerated, uh, uh, persons would have, uh, to, you know, sort of a, a long period of time thinking about breaking free from, um, uh, yeah, from, from, from a prison. Anyway, just an aside about how implausible this all was to me. Yeah. I love that yeah. idea that he like, he gets the boots <laughs> off. He doesn't have time to make a plan. He's just like, once that's the right. boots are off, they're fucked. And like, that's right. That's yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wreck this whole place. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Really, really quite baffling. The, the other part of this that I hadn't noticed. So I was watching this, I feel like on Amazon prime, which has like the little sort of like information, uh, sort of on the side, I didn't realize that John Travolta's voice and Nicolas Cage's voice are not dissimilar enough for it to mm. be obvious to me anyway, <laughs> as a viewer, but like, apparently it was like a running plot point that sometimes, I mean, they said this at one point, like, listen to my voice, it's me or whatever. Like, like that was one of the lines, but I'm like, apparently we tell. were supposed to notice yeah. That at some point, yeah. like Nicolas Cage's John Travolta's voice is coming out of Nicolas Cage's body or something like that. I'm like, but that never, never made an impression on me. That yeah, not recognizable enough. I mean, so so the one, so uh, I do know a little bit about. Um, I earlier asked you what you knew about the genesis of yeah, the yeah. film, and I don't know much, but I do know that there's a version. Or, or initially, they had intended this to be a Stallone Schwarzenegger film, oh, and I could imagine, I could imagine the voice sure, thing would have yes, been yes, recognizable and and so forth. But um, but with these with these actors, not not so much. Yeah. Do you think they would have had to explain like like micro tripping <laughs> in the very different sort of accents that Stallone and Schwarzenegger were going to do? <laughs> it would have been it would have been a very different film. It would have been a very different film. <laughs> That Very is amazing film. too. Just yeah. and I thought, just with the plot, I thought that it could not. It, it had to have been Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. I didn't know. So here's here's a, a, a thing about growing up in the '90s is that I was kind of unaware of John Travolta having been a hot shit young actor and then uh, having see, gone yeah. through this lull and really sort of appeared back on the scene with Pulp Fiction, which for Travolta is a 
is a very understated performance. And so I had no idea that Travolta was known for kind of the bigness of his acting in a way that Nicolas Cage obviously is too. So like when I see these two characters paired together, I was like, obviously it had to have been written this way. I don't know. I like, I don't know what Schwarzenegger and Stallone do as a, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, so it's hard, hard for me to imagine what that would have looked like. Again, a very different film, certainly an action film. Um, I don't think we'd get the theatricality of Caster Troy, um, you know, played by both actors. Um, you know, a bit of a missed opportunity in this film, I think. Uh, like we, we don't get to see Travolta dance, right? Like this right, is kind right. of peak, you know, everyone's interested in a little bit of, you know, Travolta yeah. enjoying himself mm-hmm. uh, with light feet. Um, and you could imagine it in a version of this film uh, when he's the, the Troy character. Um, but yeah, yeah. Interesting. 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 Um, yeah. 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 Fascinating. The coming back to the issue of like well the the idea of criminals and having fun the the like criminal hideout scene the the whole shit like great action sequence weird party sort of thing where like John uh, John Travolta I got to use that <laughs> Sean Archer is getting high somehow like like yeah. it looks like they just like roofie like his drink on purpose sort of is that sure. like how what he's doing i'm like sure yeah that passed completely over my head when i was a teenager i'm like does anyone take drugs this way I'm like is this a is this a way that one ingests whatever this is uh anyway but like the space that they are in they like descend the staircase there's all these plants and i just i was like are they hiding out in like an embassy suites? What are we, what are we doing? What is this place? Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, it's again, I mean, it, it's such a 90s film. It really does kind of trade and, and late 90s at that, but it really does trade on a lot of these, um, again, kind of just, just cartoonish ideas about, uh, you know, uh, what it is, what it's like to break the law, the sorts of, uh, revelry and fun that people are having. Um, uh, the, you know, everyone's wearing a leather jacket in a different color for some reason. Um, it's, part it's of their just like the Power Rangers, but for crime. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's, but it's, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, yeah. 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 Goodness. Yeah. My God. We have to talk about the church shootout scene, which only got better in this second sort of like this is where like John Woo's like everybody out of the room. I'm just Mm going to do my thing right now. Yeah. I and you know it's coming, right? I mean, you know it's coming, right? As soon as you see those doves, you know that you're in. You you just like like as you're watching this film, you're thinking, "I've got to get up and use the restroom." And you see the doves, and you think, "Well, hang on a second, I cannot walk (laughs) away because John Woo is about to be John Woo." Exactly. It was. It's amazing. I was trying to figure out whether. I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but like so much of this, like heavy duty catholic imagery i that takes place in the church you've got the votive candles you've got the censors you've got like obviously it's the funeral for his boss sean archer's yeah. boss that yeah Castor Troy Who, and everybody else it was is, yeah. 
which is interesting, right? Because that was his mentor. And you could imagine there's this kind of like paternal kind of father figure and just again trading on these tropes of uh masculine male relationships and then on the on, uh, on archer's side and then on the side of uh troy you know he's just lost his actual brother uh uh pollux he's just lost uh his best friend who's kind of his also his i don't want to say brother-in-law but sort yeah, of his brother-in-law so, yeah. Um, and so there's these kind of, again, this kind of, you know, the vertical relationships, uh, male relationships, the horizontal male relationships, uh, all coming together here, motivating these characters in, you know, this kind of, yeah, just, just extravagant scene of violence and, uh, and cinematography. But I didn't, I didn't actually get from the story that Castor Troy was as devastated by the loss of his brother or as anchored by that as i would have thought given how much they built up that sort of relationship to say nothing of the bald man with the earrings the like pseudo brother-in-law figure yeah in fact it is castor troy who shoots him uh yeah like there this and i i don't know maybe this is just one of the the inconsistencies in the story because you need to have well in caster troy's character because of the way that he is constructed as a criminal is just someone who likes crossing lines and whatever there's something about like there's like he makes the decision to shoot his friend or brother-in-law or whatever. Like he takes that shot deliberately knowing that he's going to kill. And, and like you're invited, he's got John Travolta's face on, but you're still invited to like, to be like, not only does he, is he not conflicted about this? He's like, he sort of wants to do it a little bit. It's, yeah. it, it's this weird, I don't know. But there's also, weird. I think yeah. there's also the, um, you know, so in previous moments, so uh, just, you know, for listeners, uh, in the opening scene of the film, of course, he's trying to shoot uh, uh, Sean Archer. The bullet, as Derek mentioned, the bullet goes through Archer, uh, hits the sun, uh, kills the sun. And then here uh, in the film, um, when they've switched identities, um, you do have these moments where it seems like Troy is wrestling with the fact that he's take that he's taken this life, this young child, right? Yeah, this, yeah, uh, the, the right. child. Um, he does seem to have moments where he's considering it. He's seeing the effect, the grief that uh, that Eve and Janie are feeling. Um, but here in the scene that you're referencing, it seems like we get the resolution, and the resolution is that he doesn't care at all. Uh, he he's about to do the same thing again. He sees this child, Adam who he doesn't know is his child. Um, he takes the shot, uh, and then the, the, you know, brother-in-law figure steps in the way, and it becomes this kind of echo of the first scene of the film, uh, telling us, I think, in some, in as many, you know, to, in, to some extent, telling us that he was incorrigible, right? Even though he's, he's had these experiences, he's not changed at all. He's still willing to do the same thing he did the first time around. He has that line he's got he's got somebody he's got a gun to somebody's head i can't remember if it's eve or Janie, uh mm. or jamie or whatever uh in the church and and he says to sean archer like your son was an accident i wanted to kill you 
why didn't you like like the the implication is like why can't you be a normal person? He's like why didn't you either kill yourself or let it go? And Sean Archer's response is basically like no father could. And I was like, you know, that made a whole <laughs> lot of emotional yeah. sense to me like when I was a teenager yeah. and I was like, oh, I guess this makes sort of emotional sense. And now I'm like none of those options seem plausible like in yeah. the least. Yeah. He's like, you took it so personally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, that's, you know, that's the heightened reality of this film. It's like, these aren't actual, it, I mean, so sometimes they're, they're actual people, but, um, there's just, you know, the film is, 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 I guess what I, what I experienced in this rewatch is that so much of this film is, you know, how do we get from plot point A to plot point B? Okay. Yeah, he just decides he doesn't like this, or he decides that he's going to do this, or I guess they just knew, right? Like, I guess they just knew that these were the doctors that they had to kill uh, after they they do the face replacement therapy, right? Yeah, or whatever right. the case is, there's just like all of these kind of uh, moments in the film that just kind of get the plot moving. And this is one of them. I think um, it's meant to to do exactly what you said. It's meant to have this emotional payoff, um, but it doesn't actually it doesn't actually make sense. I mean, yeah, uh, real human characters uh, wouldn't do any of this. Yeah. yeah. So, like, man, the idea of like real human characters. Yeah. Imagine real quickly that you are one of these actors. So like one of the fun things about this movie is that you've got these two actors who have are reputationally similar in terms of like the size of their performances uh, that they give. Both actors get to play both characters. Like I have my own particular answer to this question, but like which one of these people would you rather be if you were, if you were taking this role, would you rather have like the Nick Cage task of playing Castro Troy at the beginning and then Sean Archer later? Or would you rather have the John Travolta character and Billy Sean Archer first and then Castro Troy? Definitely Nick Cage for yeah, 100%. me. hundred percent. That was also hundred percent. Nick Cage, Nick Cage, uh, Nick Cage has the most, I mean, it's just, I'm not an actor. And so, if anyone listening is an actor, maybe they would disagree, and I would I would certainly uh, take my lesson from them. But it just seems like that's the it's it's the better the better configuration because you get to establish the Caster Troy character, you get to be extravagant with that character. You're yeah, the yeah, true right. Caster Troy, right? Mm-hmm. The other actor gets to do their impression of your yes, yes, depiction yes. of Caster mm-hmm. Troy, then. You get to have all of this kind of self-hatred, this grief. You get to to play the character of Sean Archer in the body of Caster Troy, looking at himself in the mirror and thinking about his mortal enemy, feeling this sort of self-contempt. I mean, it's just so much fun. You get to die on screen, right? I mean, you get all of the best parts. I think by comparison, um, you know, being Sean Archer uh, and starting off as Sean Archer, then becoming uh, the caster Troy as Archer, and then becoming Archer as Archer in the resolution. It's just, it's less fun. It's yeah, less fun. No. I, that, that's, <laughs> that, that is, that's very confirmatory of yeah. my own sort of impression. And you put it so wonderfully, like the, the scene in which 
Nicolas Cage shoots the FBI agent as he's leaning out of the plane and just like the, yeah. the amount of sort of physical acting there. And then he does a little Michael Jordan shrug yeah. out the door. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing moment. So he's just, Absolutely. he gets to enjoy doing that. And then he, like you said, he gets to like do the like face slapping up like the, the, like yeah. the amount I'm in of conflict, rage. right? Exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's so much scene chewing. Um, yes, exactly. Just, yeah. Where John yeah. Travolta's character is just weighed down by the loss of his son and his stuff at the beginning. And then even when Castor Troy is inhabiting his body, Castor Troy has to plausibly play Sean Archer. And so, like, to the extent that he gets to enjoy the life that Sean Archer has not been enjoying, it's still not Castor Troy's yeah. life. So that's, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. No, that's, that's right. That's, yeah. that's exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> well, so, so speaking of, of hypotheticals, so let me mm-hmm. ask you one. I mean, so what does, and this I think might be sort of my go-to question, uh, in these episodes, at least as of late, as I asked a similar question about Demolition Man, but what, what is, what, what's this movie look like in 2023, right? So, so, so here we are, you know, uh, we're at the, the, you know, the studio, uh, there's a pitch meeting, we, you know, we can't come up with a new idea for a film. We're doing a remake of Face Off, uh, in 2023. What do you think, what do you think we're changing? What are we updating? What are the themes that, uh, that come together for the, for the present day? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, for, I, immediately, obviously the face swapping technology would look strikingly similar. It just like, the, I feel like the way that they the way that they established that this was really advanced technology is that computers were involved, like in the uh, that's right. It was like it was like you were like <laughs> watching this m- these miracles of modern science take place with like Windows ninety five in the background. It was amazing. <laughs> so, Wait, like, but can I just say? Can yes, I just say yes. before you go on? Yes, I agree with you completely. And um, again, to talk about the juxtaposition of like technologies in this film, my mind was blown in that. They took his face off, and then they give him a haircut. They give him <laughs> yes, a haircut yes, when he has that. no face on. It's just it's just like the raw muscle of his face. And then there's a guy <laughs> with, with scissors just clipping his hair. And I just thought, what world is this where this is sanitary and hygienic? I mean, it's I just it's completely. Thing. I was like, you don't give him the haircut first and then cut his fucking face off. It, it, it's just so ridiculous that um, that that was the order of operation in this. No, in this we had to get the healing just, started too, but they hadn't even put the yeah, new face on. They, yet. they didn't put the new face on. They just, just they like, took his face off and then gave him a haircut. I just <laughs> the whole time I was watching, I was thinking he's just gonna have, he's gonna have hairs under the skin. <laughs> Gonna, oh my goodness. You're gonna put the face whatever form on and there's gonna be like he's imagine the itchiness. Just imagine But 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 actually that does happen, right? Remember yeah. before he goes back he goes into the prison, he's rubbing his face oh against God, the uh, yes. against the, 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 the stone wall and he says to his friend Tito, it itches. And I guess that's the reason why he's exactly, got hair. Exactly. He's got, oh my god! Uh, he just like, got a haircut. Anytime oh you've yeah. like you've ever shaved <laughs> and haven't taken a shower immediately, it's like that times yeah. a million. It's got to. Yeah. Oh my god! Anyway, that was the best two minutes of this show that has ever yeah. happened. <laughs> What's different in 2023? Yeah. What are we updating? Yeah. Well, okay, so it wouldn't be. 
domestic terrorism in the same sort of way you'd have a different sort of like there's the only thing that references anything contemporary in the 90s is the fact that castor and pollux are building this bomb for like militias which were like so like you have like white nationalists whatever uh that turns out to be like that's not how that would have gone down just sure. historically like it sure. turns out that like <laughs> like white nationalist militias actually were like deeply criminal organization but basically like they knocked over local banks in order to fund their uh their stuff not obviously uh <laughs> paying 54 million dollars or whatever to bomb makers they like the whole thing about like white nationalist militias that they had military training and so like you they didn't need explosive experts um whatever so it's not that it would have to be an external threat. I don't know. Probably a non-state actor from someplace, uh, someplace that were beyond the war on terror. So, like, let's say it's not going to be like, uh, like Islamic extremists. It would be something like. I don't know, maybe it would even be something like, you know, old remnants of the Third Reich or some like, or mm, even like before yeah. that, some sort of like ancient Austro-Hungarian Empire sort of restoration sure. movement or something that was like. Sure, yeah. That was coming into this. And so Sean Archer wouldn't be working for the FBI. It'd be much more something like, uh, not that is a domestic super police force, but much more something like the NSA or the CIA or something like that. So like those are those are that's those are that's one change right off the bat. What what did your mind go to? Yeah, no, I think that that's all right. I mean, I think I I, I was thinking of, you know, corporations involved uh to some extent. Um so I think I agree with you, you know, non-state actors. Um I you know, I think that there is likely uh, you know, some really interesting kind of trans questions here. Um, I could imagine, uh, you know, gender playing a role, uh, yes. in 2023, mm -hmm. right? Like the enemies being, uh, not necessarily the same gender, but different genders such that the, uh, the face off, uh, has more, um, yeah, just it, it's more involved and then also kind of uh, trades on some anxieties uh, that folks have about identity across gendered um, gendered lines. I could imagine uh, also, and maybe these are just my own interests, but I could imagine race as well. I mean, it's interesting, like you get this kind of in the uh, in the decision to kind of, you know, to send Sean Archer in, you get this statement that. They've got the, roughly the same build and the same skin tone, um, both of which I think aren't true. If you just look at, yeah, exactly, you know, uh, exactly. at these actors, it's just I mean, not that's, true. That's the amazing <laughs> thing. I mean, imagine now Arnold and Sylvester Stallone in this. Sort of like, sure. It's, it's simply yeah. the narrative being like or like the voiceover being like, here, I'm just going to describe something that completely violates yeah. what you're seeing on the screen. But just go with it real quick. Exactly. Exactly. I think like yeah. the – I love that idea. I think that the gender thing would be much easier politically to pull off than like. I think that's like, absolutely, a, a absolutely. I, I was immediately like, you know what? I would I would see a version of Face Off that is like Melissa McCarthy and John Goodman, uh, 
that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody needs to, uh, yeah, to get on that, make that, make that happen. Yeah. No, it's just, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it just, you know, so many of these films that we've been talking about over the past while, um, are just for me so emblematic of their era that it's just an interesting thought experiment for me to think about, um, how the same general themes get worked out into the anxieties of a particular and in this case, the present moment, right? I mean, um, the, the worry that I think existed in 1997, again, before 9-11 happens in the U.S., the worry that I think, uh, some Americans might have had is kind of a latent worry that their enemy could sort of become them, right? Or that they could, um, kind of find themselves in the role of the enemy. Um, I think, was kind of a background fear that this film kind of taps into. To some extent, I think, you know, a lot of, I think whenever, whenever there's a popular film, um, I think it's worth taking a peek at, uh, what the popularity of that film yes. might reveal yes. about sort of the social, you know, psychology, the, the social sort of, um, uh, unconscious, uh, if you will. And I think this film is really kind of tapping into, um, some identity worries, right? I mean, so we've previously in this podcast talked about, about Total Recall, um, which, you know, is another one of these films about identity, about the fragility of identity. And, you know, I was thinking about the ways in which, you know, if this film were also inspired by a Philip K. Dick, uh, novel, you know, the, the res, the, the sort of the twist at the end would be that there had been a face off that had occurred before the first scene of the film, right? And that actually we don't know who's who at all, right? Um, there is, there uh, was supposedly an yeah. alternate ending at one point in which it was much hmm. more ambiguous, in which like, okay, the one of the final shots was like John Travolta, like it, like, soft light soft focus comes back through the door blah blah everything is happy and then he turns and looks in a mirror and he sees nicholas cage's face in it or something like that okay it was, like, it was interesting and then, and yeah apparently it tested poorly or whatever and so they're okay. like okay let's just make this let's just make this crystal clear that it is just a happy ending and sure but, but yeah it, it, so that's exactly. interesting yeah. yeah right yeah that's interesting and that reminds me it just brings to mind that there's this wonderful shot in the film um, that we haven't talked about, but that I, I found myself just appreciating, um, where the two of them are, you know, standing on opposite sides of a wall and the walls have mirrors on them and they're both pointing their, their weapons, their guns at one another through the wall, looking at their own reflection, seeing the face of their enemy, which is their own face. And they can't see their enemy, but they, so it's just this really interesting depiction again of, you know, um, the anxiety that I'm, I'm attempting to kind of name, uh, here, which is this anxiety that, you know, maybe if we got a good look at our enemy, we would discover that our mm. enemy is us, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they mm-hmm. are, they are us. Um, yeah. And the and film, I think, does a really nice job of, tugging at some of that and i also like that but it's also comforting this is where like the the clownish criminality sort of comes in the the criminal characters in movies like these and now i'm thinking about like con air as well are so 
it's not that the character is two dimensional. It's that the thing that makes them bad is so, is so inhuman in, in some particular way. So like you're, you're simultaneously playing with this fear that like at any moment one could discover that like, you know, we are the baddies to quote that sure. meme. But yeah, on the, on the other hand, there is no possibility that like we could be as evil as that and not know it, you know? So like both those things are present sort of at the same time. It's which, which is also very interesting. The sort of need to challenge that identity or like the, let's say the absence of uh, a more certain kind of enemy and the anxiety that provokes, but also the need to sort of like, or the desire, let's say to buy the fantasy that this is actually impossible. Like I want to, I want to toy with that idea, but I don't want to have to think too hard about it as a, yeah. as a movie going audience. Yeah, no, it, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 The film does. Yeah. Anyway, the film does really kind of sort of set us up to sort of have, um, to kind of flirt with this idea without kind of, uh, fully losing ourselves in it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. They're like, and I, I thank you for bringing it back to the sort of shots of the movie. The thing that I, the thing that I remembered distinctly from seeing this as a teenager and that I've appreciated on each of the two rewatches that I've now done in the sure. last couple of years or the last year, uh, is the way that they actually, you know, the, one of the big pay, like the, we're going to cut somebody's face off and then puts it, put it on another person's face. Like that, that was, that's not an easy thing to film. And they did that. <laughs> sure. They did that pretty well. Like the way that like you see both bodies like lying there faceless without ever having to directly see. I mean, we talked in the Jurassic Park episode about how you had these like dinosaurs who like looked real, but like conveniently when they're killing somebody, they're like partially obstructed. So you don't have to always like, yeah. your imagination can do a little bit of the work. And it's similar here too. You see like Nicholas Cage's face reflected in a mirror or like you follow the face that has been taken off over to what, like the contact lens sailing solution that it's sitting in. That's whatever. right. <laughs> And like, and so like the body, like the, like the raw wound is like in the background yeah. out of focus. It's uh like, that was, that was an artful way of dealing with that. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's absolutely right. Because as I was watching all of this and, and, you know, thinking about the haircut and everything in the scene, um, I was, I was, you, you kind of, you get this feeling of revulsion and kind of the body horror of it all without actually having to confront it. And I think that is wonderfully done here to kind of toe the line, um, between, again, having this kind of central piece of the narrative, right? The, the, yeah, the yeah. faces coming off, right? <laughs> but this is not, a, it's not a horror film. It's not a, right, right. it's not meant to be, you know, to kind of, to do all of that, but you still get the sort of this sense of being, um, uh, yeah, repulsed by, uh, the, the, the perversion of this kind of, you know, of the identity of the hero and the villain. Uh, you get that without, without actually having to confront, uh, the visuals in full, which is, which is well done. Yeah. The most the last big point, and then we can sort of like wrap this up, but like the, the most psychologically 
realistic part of this movie. I felt in a, in a movie that has very little psychological realism that I could sort of like sure. latch onto <laughs> was the moment in which Sean Archer as Nicholas Cage is in prison and he finds out that like Archer, well, that John Travolta, that Castor Trey has taken <laughs> over his old body and yeah. is being him and has murdered everybody uh, that that can perform this operation. This is the big setup, like that knew who he was. This is the place in which like he's not inhabiting a costume anymore. He is now condemned in his mind to be Castor Troy forever with no possible like the idea like we were talking earlier you know the boots come off and all of a sudden he's out of the prison like that's sure. that's step one of a multi-stage yeah. incredible process that we are led to believe just is impossible because there aren't a lot of people that do face transplant technology like so the fact that that doesn't turn out to be uh, a big impediment i mean we know it's not going to be but still like i thought Again, Nicolas Cage does a wonderful job of with that moment of sort of like the bottom Absolutely. dropping out. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you you feel the sense of uh, of of you know resignation, uh, sorrow. Um, I mean, again, I mean, he enters into this this whole project in a way that's um, completely. Like when they when they when they pitch it to him, he says, "So basically, what you're asking me to do is break the law, risk my neck, uh, and lie to everyone that I care about and love in my life." Sure, why not? I'll do yeah, it, right? Exactly, I mean, he just right. he seems to kind of go along with it in this very sort of casual way. But then that's um, kind of uh, balanced by the fact that he has this deeply emotional moment of realizing exactly how much he's given he's given up um, and how far away from home he is. Right? I mean, um, as I was earlier saying that this film could have been pitched as sort of, you know, Freaky Friday, but cops and robbers. Um, there's another way in which this film could be sort of the logical extension of just about any, um, you know, uh, deep undercover film within which a cop gets lost in the role, uh, you know, in this way. And so you could imagine someone sort of pitching this movie and saying, well, what if not only is the cop so deep undercover that they get lost, what if they're actually, literally inhabiting the body uh, of their enemy uh, with no way home, right? So the, 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 that scene that you're identifying uh, really delivers on uh, that version of this. I, like, when you bring that up, I'm like, The Departed does that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Don't absolutely. Yeah, that's the... Absolutely. That's the yeah. yeah. So I, I was thinking about The Departed when I was watching this and thinking it's it's interesting to kind of think about those films as uh, sort of complementary in some ways because you get the same kind of inversion, but you get that inversion for different reasons. You also get, you know, again, a character who's so deeply lost in their undercover persona that they don't see a way back home. And you get this other character who is... Um, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, as it were, uh, who's, who's, yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, I, I it's interesting to think I about the, make that connection. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Like same movie, 
utterly different movie. One exactly. Is, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one final thing before we before we leave. I mean, um, you alluded to this scene earlier, and I <clears throat> I did find it striking, uh, and I just wanted to comment on it. Namely, the scene with Janie and the sexual assault. Um, it's it's <clears throat> you could imagine it being a bigger scene, but it just gets pl- it. It's sort of there's like no real uptake, right? I mean, there's this kind of moment that that. Uh, could become sexual assault. Seems like it's going to be a sexual assault. Uh, the father figure, uh, Troy, Caster Troy as Sean Archer comes in, assaults the, uh, uh, the, the assailant, um, who is, I just want to mention, uh, played by Danny Masterson, who is, uh, a person who has been accused of sexual assault, um, and I think is still, the trial is still ongoing or something yeah, as yeah. of the time that of this recording. So yeah. yeah, it's just a really interesting kind of experience to watch that in this world. I definitely I'll had to say that. Yeah. yeah. I like that was, you know, thanks to the Amazon. I'm like, I was like, is that, that can't be Danny yeah. Masterson, right? Yeah, absolutely. Was. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I was confused as to what that like, was that scene supposed to develop Nicolas Cage's character? Nicolas Cage. God damn it. Supposed <laughs> to develop Pastor Troy's character as like stepping into a father figure role. Was it just there to set up the, you know, Chekhov's butterfly knife for later? Sure. On in the movie? Was it just supposed, you know, so yeah, I, I was yeah. sort of confused as to, yeah, that's all. Yeah, but it just sort of happens, and then you know, uh, the daughter Janie or Jamie uh, says, "Yeah, Dad, I was, you know, I was almost raped," uh, and they just kind of leave it there. It's like there's no real kind of uptake. Um, Yeah, this wasn't. It wasn't. (laughs) I mean, this is this is also, I think, a very key ingredient of the movies that we're watching at this particular time period, which is very much that. If there is there, there is no problem that cannot be fully solved, like erased from existence through an act of well-targeted spectacular violence. And that's so, right. Like, once yeah. that happens, everything is fine. There's no like. There's no yeah. like. Holy shit! This person that I thought I could trust, like, yeah, was going to completely. And there was nothing that I could do about that. Like, I, I'm I'm yeah. shaking here. It's just like, oh, thank God, Dad was here to to be violent. Shit out of it. Exactly, and then, yeah. and then everything is okay. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's just again, it speaks to the way in which this film kind of the psychology of the characters. Uh, just very interesting um, to see, you know who grieves what and who doesn't grieve or who is not depicted as grieving. Um, you know, again, when Sean Archer is going to, you know, don the face of his mortal enemy, the person who has killed, uh, uh, his youngest child, there's like no psyche vow. There's no kind of psychological preparation for, uh, how deeply traumatizing this experience might be. But again, that's that's a I'm imagining a very different film than the film that this film is because this film is just trying to get the plot moving, um, mostly trying to get the plot moving uh, so that we can you know see the spectacle of it all. But again, the, the themes that you that that you've identified and that we've identified here about uh, themes of masculinity, themes of fatherhood, um, etc., uh, certainly do come uh, uh, certainly rest just below the surface of this really spectacular as in full of spectacle uh piece of film yeah
that seems like a great note to end on. <laughs> we can uh, wrap it up there. Thanks so much for appearing here again on our May recording. And we'll have to uh, get together again in June. Terrific. Looking forward to it as always. And that is our show. Thanks to Winston for being here early in the month, as always. And we will look forward to Andy rejoining us in June. Please subscribe to our show wherever you listen. And leaving us a rating and a review helps others to find us as well. And send us feedback or comments at point10pod at gmail.com. That's the number 10 in point 10. In our next episode, Rachel White returns to discuss the deep controversies surrounding 1998's Meet Joe Black. Until then, I'm Derek Gottlieb. This is the Point 10 Podcast. We will see you next time.